You're listening to the Young Baptist Podcast, a show that exists to call believers to committed faithfulness to God's Word, to equip Christians by answering the tough questions that need to be asked, and to challenge churches on everything that distracts us from the beauty and glory of Christ. Now, here's your hosts, Clay Maynard and Josh Johnson. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Young Baptist Podcast. My name is Clay Maynard, and I'm joined by my co-host, Josh Johnson. We're two guys committed to the gospel, and we want to see our brothers and sisters captivated all over again by the beauty and glory of Christ. Josh, how's it going, man? It's going well. Thank you, Clay. It's a beautiful morning, but I really want to stir up some controversy already. (laughs) You're feeling it, right? Let's do it right now. (laughs) You know what I want to talk about, Clay? I want to answer the question that everyone is asking right now. Okay. And that's this. Was Giannis, whatever. Antetokounmpo. Yeah, there it is. Was his block in game four of the NBA finals in 2021 better than LeBron James' block of Andre Iguodala in game seven with less than two minutes on the clock tied up against a 73-win team coming back from a 3-1 deficit? Was Giannis's block better than LeBron's chase down block? No, it, it wasn't really close i mean it, it was a great block it, it was a finals yeah. block it was it was a clutch block it was cool and it was really athletic but uh but no the stakes weren't as high the situation was much different the scrutiny is different first of all if you if you like to watch the nba you know there's a lot of star players that mm-hmm. are injured like i don't ever believe in putting asterisks next to championships because injuries are a part of the game. Every single year, people get injured, and some people win, and some people don't. And there were people who would have been close to that upper tier if they hadn't had injuries. That's every single season. But to compare this year, a year where most of the best players in the league are not left standing at the end of the season due to injuries, I mean, does anybody know? To compare that to a year where the playoffs occurred and everybody went everybody went through the gauntlet of the of the NBA playoffs and Le, LeBron and the Cavs and Steph and the Warriors the Titans everybody universally understood them as the two best teams in the league with a close third being that Oklahoma City team that mm-hmm. that had a grueling series with the Golden State the round before where Kevin Durant was in that one like that was a completely different environment than what we're facing right now. To to compare those two things, is there anybody who believes a fully Brooklyn Net, a fully healthy Brooklyn Nets team or a fully healthy Los Angeles Lakers team wouldn't wash either one of these teams yeah. in, in probably five games? The fact is, and not no disrespect to the Bucks or the Suns, but the it's just the fact the NBA Finals this year are two teams that shouldn't even be there. It feels a little different. Because, I'll, I'll say that. It feels a little different. Like you just said, because of injuries. And back to the block. I saw someone say that it was a greater display of athleticism for Giannis to do what he did than for LeBron to come full court, basically, and block Andre Iguodala. I have so many problems with that. <laughs> Mostly because Giannis, being as big as he is, took two steps and jumped and got a block. And don't get me wrong, it's an impressive block. It reminds me a lot of uh, James LeBron's block on Splinter back in the, the NBA Finals when yeah, they were playing uh, the... Splitter and the Spurs. Yeah, when yeah. they were playing the Spurs. Funny that LeBron James' name came up again. <laughs> um, it was an impressive block, but you have to think about this. Someone said he had to recover. I watched that block so many times last night. <laughs> He didn't recover anything. Every move he made was a basketball move. And he just so happened to be seven foot two <laughs> with 14 feet long arms. And he made the block. Okay, great. You're up by two in game four. The series isn't over yet. There's yeah. honestly, it's, there's nothing on the line here. Yeah, it's not 90 seconds left in a game seven where you've just, co- you're in the process of completing a 3-1 comeback against a 73-win team. That, like That's clearly a different level. Yeah, we're not even talking about Tom Brady sitting on the bench down, what was it, 28-6 to six in the mm-hmm. Super Bowl and coming back and just wiping the floor with the Atlanta Falcons. 
like that's a better performance than, <laughs> than what we're dealing with here. Yeah. It's I just don't see the comparison. Josh, I just never knew you were I just never knew you were this big of a LeBron James defender. Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, you put that you put that trash on Twitter uh, a few no, days ago. No, that's a fact, bro. That said that nobody that everything guys are doing now Jordan already did before them. No, no, no. That you, some heresy like You that. have to read the tweet correctly. <laughs> What Jordan did for the world of sports as a whole is unparalleled. Okay, I can accept that. That's the tweet, though. Yeah, but in the I didn't have a problem with that tweet. I had a problem with in in the comments. You told somebody, yeah, name one thing LeBron James has done for this generation of sports that Jordan didn't already do. One thing that LeBron did for the world of sports that Jordan hasn't done. Player empowerment and player mobility. Jordan quit the sport because they wouldn't give him, give him the coach he wanted. If you LeBron want. picks his coaches, LeBron picks his teammates. Jordan tried to do that, couldn't do it, and left the sport over it. All of that to say, if you think Giannis's block was better than LeBron's, let's bow our heads, close our eyes, and have a quick word of prayer for you. <laughs> But at this point, I don't even know if prayer will help. <laughs> Clay, we have been asking our audience to submit questions, yeah, episode man. topics, all sorts of good stuff. And so today's episode is going to be our attempt to answer the questions that you have submitted. Um, Clay, let's just jump right up in here. Well, actually, before we do it, uh, I think it'd be a good time to just thank everyone for listening to the show again we've crossed over i think twenty one thousand downloads yep sure have and so this is episode number 15 thank you so much it's it's mind-blowing we say it every time it's mind-blowing but we are really appreciative of everybody's participation in the show and thank you guys for being so patient we've been going through the distinctives to kind of lay a foundation for what Baptists believe because that's going to be the platform from which we can launch into so many other topics because so many so much of what we believe in practice goes back to a lot of those foundational beliefs and even before the distinctives covering the gospel the way that we did these things are foundational to to our faith and to the way we practice our faith and so just being patient with us as we went through all that I think these topics were exciting I know Josh and I learned so much mm-hmm. uh, we had such uh, enriching conversations with people along the way but we're really excited about what's next yeah. that's going to be a great platform from which to uh, to launch into what's next uh, but you guys have sent in some great questions about the episodes we've already done so we're looking forward to jumping into those absolutely and some of your your suggestions for episodes don't worry, pretty much everything you guys have suggested as far as episode content goes, we've we've talked about covering. We have some guests lined up. Well, not lined up yet, but we're working on lining up some guests for all of that. It's going to be great. I think the best days of our podcast are ahead, and I'm excited about it, man. Absolutely. So the first question we got is from Caleb Black. Thanks, Caleb, for submitting your question. Uh, it's on the subject of congregationalism, which was from our probably from our episode on the autonomy of the local church. Um, He says, generally speaking, what biblical support is there for a congregational model of church polity, church members voting for leaders, big decisions, etc.? I personally am strongly in favor of congregationalism, but it seems to have limited scriptural support from what I can see. Keep up the great work. Love the podcast. Um, Yeah, thanks for that question and and for the kind words, Caleb. I would say, uh, Josh, that most of what we have in scripture is example. Mm Mm-hmm. But then we have, do have a couple of specific instructions. So on choosing leaders, what we have on that is example, where the church laid hands and ordained their leaders. You're referencing Acts 13? Yes. And then there is instruction to Timothy on how you qualify those leaders and to Titus. Now, that could be in, you could infer from that that Paul was giving those instructions to the church leader so that the church leader could play an instrumental role in nominating those types of individuals. I think there's a case to be made for that. Whether or not you, d- you deduce that as, I, you know, as I'm putting it out there, whether or not you come right. to that conclusion too, that's up to you. But, uh, but I know others have. They've said, hey, he gave those in- that list to Titus and to Timothy. There, it could be in- it deduced from that that he was expecting them to play a lead role in qualifying the, or, or, or nominating the, 
candidates that are that fit those mm-hmm. characteristics. Um, but you do see throughout the if, if you go back to listen to the autonomy episode, one thing we did do is we talked a, we talked about congregationalism, but we also talked a lot about church polity. Church polity affects um, congregationalism. It, it affects ecclesiological structure, but it's there's more to polity than just that. Mm-hmm. So you could be you could have, believe in the autonomy of the local church and disagree about church polity. You can have churches set up in different ways. I will say there is explicit instruction in Scripture for the congregation to do certain things. They're responsible for the doctrinal purity of the church in Galatians 1. The whole church is. The whole church is responsible for church discipline in Matthew 18. They're responsible for holding their leaders accountable in 1 Timothy 5. And so there's a lot of things that the congregation is specifically charged with. That being the case, it does seem like the onus in Scripture is put on the entire congregation. So that's where Baptists historically did deduct the doctrine of congregationalism from. It's this idea that the church, it's not, it's not right to just sort of pick leaders and then just say, okay, it's their job. I don't have to worry about this. Um, congregational authority uh, comes from those things. Now, again, people have different views on how that should how that should look. And there are people who disagree with congregationalism entirely, but I, I don't find when I hear the arguments for um, the different models, like for example, uh, the Presbyterian model and for the, uh, sp- even more for the Episcopalian model, that's the Catholic model, essentially. Most of the, uh, that argument comes from the argument from tradition. Oh, this is just the way we've always done it. That's the Episcopalian model, the one man in charge. There's no biblical support for that. The, there is some biblical support for the elder model. I think there's at least some example you can you can bring an argument from. Like Acts 15 is is a common um, source text for that. What do you think, Josh? I was going to go to Acts 15 on that as far as the elder model, but it would appear from what you read there in Acts 15 that they took those the final verdict, if you will, and, and took it back to the church, and then the church uh, approved it. Uh, I would be in agreement that congregational authority is true. Also because, and you may have already mentioned this, um, when you look at church discipline, it's a matter of the body working working together, if you will, to make those kind of decisions. It's not just a pastor shows up and blasts your face off and kicks you out of the church. No, it's like a church-wide thing. So I think that would be another support in the direction of congregational um, authority or congregationalism. You also see Paul making, when when major dis- church decisions need to be made, you see him writing that in his epistles. You don't see him in the pastoral epistles saying, hey, kick these people out, hey, you know, make these sweeping decisions. You don't see him instructing the 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 church leaders that way. You see him instructing the church that way. Well, as yeah, a whole. First Corinthians fifteen is not fifteen. I'm sorry. First Corinthians is a whole a whole letter to a church saying, "Fix this problem." Yeah. Not, hey, let your elders read this and tell them to fix it. Church, fix the problem. Yep, that's correct. And and it's okay that you have elders who are more trained in the word, who who study and and you look to them for guidance and leadership and for them to lead in these areas, but I don't they 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 shouldn't do it at the exclusion of the church. That's clear. And I think that's where the basis for congregationalism congregationalism comes from. I hope that helps. All right, we got a question here from John Hathaway. He says, "Hey guys, love the podcast. I've listened to every episode and just finished listening to the last one." One thing I wanted to talk about is where you said we must treat those, the church disciplines, as heathens and unbelievers. However, doesn't 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 to 15 suggest, although we don't fellowship with them as believers, we should still treat them as brothers? Just a thought. Appreciate you guys. Let me go ahead, Clay, and read uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15. It says, And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Clay, I think this is kind of something, this is referring back to something you may have mentioned on one of our episodes. So uh, you want to take this one? Sure. Yeah, and I may not have been uh, perfectly clear on on that. Matter of fact, I'm sure I wasn't. Second uh, Thessalonians does say not to treat people as enemies. And I think that that's true. I don't believe Corinthians is teaching to treat them as enemies. It does talk about uh, treating them as a publican and as a heathen in one place. But I believe you said it right, John, when you said here, we shouldn't fellowship with them as believers, but we should still treat them as brothers. 
Uh, I think what Corinthians is talking about when it says to, to treat them as a publican and a heathen, that it is referring to fellowship. It's saying for, for purposes of, of uh, scriptural, the scriptural fellowship of the church, you treat them as heathens. But in the way you actually treat them when you're near them, it's, we don't treat them as enemies. They're not our enemies. Uh, and he, and Thessalonians is clear. We should admonish them as brothers. And I think you're dead right about that. And I appreciate that distinction. Great comment. All right. So we got a great question from Ronnie Brown on the meats offered to idols. He was, he says, I'm listening to your podcast episode on individual soul liberty. And you touched on something that has me puzzled. I've been preaching through the letters to the churches out of revelation. Hey, that's funny. Our pastor's actually been doing that too here at fellowship. Uh, he says, I have been, um, I'm sorry. <clears throat> Let me start that over. He says, in those letters, eating meat sacrificed to idols is condemned. How does that harmonize with the Romans texts that are brought into, po into the podcast episode? I harmonize them by saying in the letters, this eating of meat is served to idols is mentioned along with fornication. Them together indicates that these churches were slipping into idolatry. Do you have any thoughts because it is a seeming contradiction in the New Testament, if not properly addressed? Uh, Ronnie, great comment. Uh, this is a really uh, interesting question, and it made me revisit it because I had not really thought about the way it words it, and it made me go back to the scriptures here. Um, Romans does, obviously, as we mentioned in our individual soul liberty episode, teach that one can eat and one cannot eat, and it's not necessarily sin that one might feel the freedom to eat and the other one who's weaker does not feel the freedom to eat meat that was offered to idols. I think that where you where you find a balance is in is first of all in realizing that Romans 14 is talking about just eating the meat. In other words, you're just eating meat that previously was used in a in a worship environment to idols. He's not talking about the worship itself. He's not talking about the idolatry itself. He's talking about just eating the meat afterwards. I agree with you. It does seem in Re in Revelation chapter two. It's which let me read that Revelation two. Uh, the verse you're referencing is the church of Pergamos. And in verse 14, he says, uh, but I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. So he's clearly already talking about somebody who's participating in idolatry. And then he says, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So I do agree with you that what he's describing is an environment of idol worship. One other passage that, in as I was revisiting this upon reading your question, uh, I was it brought me to that study brought me to First Corinthians ten, and I thought this was super helpful. In verse twenty, he says this. This is Paul, which by the way is the same person who wrote Romans fourteen, saying, "Hey, some eat, some don't. Let them do it to the Lord. Be fully persuaded in your own mind." Paul also says in First Corinthians ten, he says, "But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God." And I should not that ye have should have fellowship with devils. Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Paul is actually addressing this exact point that you're making, which is th there are there is some eating of certain meats. There are certain contexts you can do that in where it is materially participating in idol worship. And I think that's where it's different. So I think, Josh, tell me what you think about this. This Because this question this is a great question. It really got me thinking. There are some actions that on their own may or may not be sinful, and you may or may not have the freedom to, to do it, a la Romans 14. But you put that same action in a different context, in a different set of circumstances. It does materially involve you participating in something that's sinful. So you can, in some contexts, you can't divorce the specific action from the from the broader environment you're in and say, oh, I'm doing something that's not sinful. Well, you might be in an environment where, where to do so materially involves you in something that's sinful. And in this case, it's the eating of meats, which according to Romans 14, you may or may not have to feel the freedom to do it, but it's not sin or not sin. In 1 Corinthians 10 and in, Rome, in Revelations 2, the context there is that it's so closely in, in that context and in that circumstance connected to idol worship that to eat it in that environment is to participate in idol worship. What do you think? I think we have to keep reading in 1 Corinthians 10 because he says, verse 23, all things are lawful, not all things are expedient. He says, if any of them 
that believe not bid you to a feast and you be disposed to go whatsoever set before you eat, asking no question for conscience sake. But if a man say unto you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord in the fullness of thereof. Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of others. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? So I think you're not seeing any contradiction here with Romans 14 right. or Revelation 2. Because what you're seeing is, you're seeing in Romans 14, Paul says, eat it or don't eat it. Mm-hmm. And that's where we get liberty of conscience, right? But here he's saying, if you're going to an unbeliever's feast, and he said, this is a sacrifice to idols, don't eat it. Not because it's a sin to you but because it's a testimony issue for him. Yeah, he's told you that it's offered to idols because he perceives that maybe you wouldn't want to eat it because you're a believer. And the fact that he thinks that well, is a good reason to... That, that may be true or not. That's kind I'm say, of... Well, I'm we're saying, not really sure. He well, just, it seems that the, to me, it seems that's what he's saying. He's saying, just the saying person, that, that it's being sacrificed unto idols is just being like, hey, here's this meat that I have that I sacrificed to this idol. Whether or not it's because the person's a Christian, we can't really say one way or the other. Well, no, what I'm saying is that the person giving it to you thinks you would want to know that. Clearly, he's, I mean, possibly. Or, I mean, it's just you tell him because you're trying to gain favor with the God you just sacrificed it to. Right. Oh, I I, I see what you're saying. saying? Yeah. But he's saying don't eat, not for your, because your conscience is going to be messed up, but because of the conscience of the other person, the person who, uh, is offering the food to you. Why? Because why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? And it goes back to kind of what you were saying. At that point, to him, you're engaging in his idolatry. Right. So yeah, and First Corinthians seems to seems to I think First Corinthians ten really lays it out that that this is an environment that if you're in env- an environment where to participate means you are materially involved in the worship of idols, that that's different. That you should abstain. You know, yeah, that's that's what I would say. But it is a test. It is because it's a testimony issue. Just because you would eat it with Thanksgiving and not meaning to worship doesn't mean that to be in that in that environment for testimony's sake, it could put you in a position to look like you are worshiping idols. Yeah, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yeah, and that's the whole point of First Corinthians ten too, which is which is that it, all things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. And this is maybe something in the liberty, you know, in our individual soul liberty episode, we didn't have time to cover every single angle. This would be a great conversation, which is after you understand the basics of individual soul liberty, and after you understand the basics of freedom of conscience, the next step for a mature believer is to start going into situations not with what can I do and what can't I do, but what should I do, mm-hmm. right? Understanding that discretion means we enter all environments seeking the glory of God and the edification of those around us first and saying, hey, maybe all, maybe all things are lawful, but maybe all things are not expedient. That's what the mature Christian does. Well, and they that's enter what- every environment saying, not saying... Can I, do I want to, is it lawful, but is it expedient? Does it edify? Well, and that's why Paul even says here in this passage, whatsoever you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Mm. In that context, then we see this is a lot broader than just when you sit down to eat, you should pray and thank God for it. This is also a, a testimony issue for the unbeliever that you may be interacting with. Which brings other comments too, like you should probably be hanging out with unbelievers at some point in your life and being a testimony to them in some way. But absolutely, that's another subject altogether on its own. Great question, Ronnie. I appreciate that. We received a message from someone who requested to remain anonymous. They said, I can't thank you enough for your podcast. I re-listened to episode nine today, followed by episode 10 and had a little glory fit in the Lord. I get it now. I was not taught individual soul liberty since I've been saved 31 years ago. It was about keeping the rules to look and do what you're supposed to do. I'm a year into my journey out of that mindset and never heard these things like you both put out there, as well as Josh Tice. It's like a burden has been lifted and I feel lighter and freer. It's hard to explain. Thank you for what you teach in the podcast. It's not falling on deaf ears. God bless you both. Thank you so much for saying that. Wow. These kind of messages, they're just super encouraging. Wow. And yeah, that's an amazing. They just make uh, you want to just keep on like, let's, let's keep going, dude. Yeah, let's that's go. such an encouragement. Thank you so much for sending that in. Yeah, we had a great comment from Matt West, who's a, a good listener of our podcast. He gives me a lot of feedback on our episodes, and I really appreciate it. He always gives me uh, interesting things to think about uh, with his comments. He commented on the two 
ordinances episode, which by the way, Josh, uh, two ordinances has not been our top performing episode, but we have gotten so much Some of interaction our engaging though. Yeah, yeah. So many interactions on that episode on specifics. Uh, and this is what Matt West says about uh, communion. He says, my norm has been that it has been done once a month which is different than you, I would be naive to suggest that my experience has played no role in my conclusion. I know you dislike the word sacrament, but the very term refers to a means of grace. One of the things about grace is that we don't, nor should we, do things to mute or de-accent grace. We bring it to the forefront. You've hit on on probably the most important point that the examples in church are that they did it about as often as they met. But the biggest factor from the scripture is that they are commanded to do it. How many of the other things that we are commanded to do do we try to limit? If I suggested we only preach once a month, you'd be properly irritated. If I suggested we sing every quarter, you'd be apoplectic. Pray in every other service. No way. Don't baptize too often as we don't want it to seem too commonplace. Uh, Don't we usually make the exact opposite argument? So why do we treat the supper differently? Could it be that it is the only means of grace in which we participate? I'm sorry. Could it be that it's the only means of grace in which we participate that causes us to be more internally reflective? It is the means of grace that requires us to look at our own sin-filled life and react, and most of us just don't like to do that as often. I also think this dovetails with a closed communion more easily. The more seldom you do it, the more frustrating it becomes when you miss that particular week. If we knew they were doing it every week, it would make it a lot easier to accept Josh's closed communion logic. Matt, that's a great comment. Yeah, I really like that. That's good. Very thoughtful. uh, And and you're right. I mean, a lot of us bring uh, what we've always done. Like to me, once a month seems like a lot. But that's only because I grew up doing it like once a year or more or less or whatever, but it, it was a lot more rare. And so you're right. Like Thinking biblically about these things, you're right. There's no other uh, means of grace that we, that we talk about. Ah, let's limit that. Yeah. And I think that's really important when we're making these decisions. And, wow. I, I really like that, Matt. I appreciate you sending that. Would you limit your preaching to once a month. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I know some limit, people just we, reading it is going to make a, a blood vessel burst in their head. Just yeah. But think it. about it when you, if we, if he's right, if we said, no, we only baptize once every six months, <laughs> people would be like, why? Yeah. Why wouldn't you baptize them when it's, Whenever. when they're ready to be baptized? Yeah. Why wouldn't you just baptize? If they're ready, why not baptize them then? Well, and he says here, pray in every other service. No way that happens anyways. Fact of the matter is Mm. the church just doesn't pray enough, which would be a great episode. And wink, wink. But (laughs) yeah, thanks for sending that one in Matt. Matt sent in another comment. He said, if one's job is actually assistant to the pastor, then no, he doesn't need to be an elder. But if his job is assistant pastor, associate pastor, executive pastor, or anything else, pastor, the title itself implies that he is a pastor red elder. Those should be elder positions. This is going back to our episode on the two offices when we kind of discussed uh, at that time my position, and now I guess technically your position here at the church as well, whether or not they're elder elder roles. Those are good thoughts as well. Yeah. And I agree with you, Matt. That's, 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 an, that's a fair point. I think when you call somebody a pastor, you, if, you, if, you're, if they're not an elder, you, you run the risk of being very unclear and and maybe by your practice, even though if not by your stated doctrine, by your practice, um, muddying the water on what an elder's job is and what their responsibilities are. I think that's a great. I think it's a great comment. What about if you're the assistant to the regional pastor? Well, that position doesn't really exist, <laughs> but it does, Josh. No, you're the assistant to the regional pastor. No, that position isn't real. It's just <laughs> a made up position. Does it come with a raise? <laughs> no comment (laughs) (laughs) all right so we had some nice one-off uh questions and comments these should go a little faster uh timothy dyson asks what is the most memorable sermon each of you have heard preached and why okay so the first one that comes to my mind was when i was in college i went to a little college in california and john getch preached the i don't know if there was a title to it but it was called the scripture sermon and 
I don't think I'll ever forget it. He opened with John 17, 17, I think it is. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. He told everyone in the auditorium to close their Bible, put their notepads away, put them under their chairs. And for the next 30 to 35 minutes, he did nothing but quote scripture from Genesis 1 to the end of the book. And he straight preached the gospel of nothing but quoting scripture. It was something else. That's amazing. It was amazing. It gives me, I'm just talking about it, kind of gives me a little bit of goosebumps. It was a fantastic sermon. Yeah, I heard one similar to that, and he called it the story of the Bible. And he preached an entire message, and it, I think it was 25, 30 minutes, and it was just quoting scripture. That's Those are so cool. When you can put the, that, that, the verses together that tell the complete story from Genesis to Revelation, that's amazing. Would you say that's your, your most memorable sermon? No, I've got two that come to mind if I can pick two. Can I guess one of them? Let me try to guess. Sure. Is one of them The Prodigal Sons by Tim <laughs> Keller? <laughs> so Josh is a friend of mine. You can tell that from this. Yeah, that is the first one I was going to mention. Ah. I've talked about that a few times with you, haven't I? Yeah. Uh, I love that message. It's a sermon uh, given by uh, Pastor Tim Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church uh, in Manhattan, uh, that's a, a a sermon that you all should listen to. It's called The Prodigal Sons, plural. I won't spoil any of it for you, but I could almost re-preach half that sermon right now because I've listened to it so many times. It was very effect- effective in my life at a particular time where I needed that message. And so it, it's been, it's been very, very crucial in my story, not just the message itself, but the truths that have flowed from that. It was a very uh, pivotal time in my life to hear that message. And, and so I'm I'm grateful to God for him preaching it and me being able to hear it and access it. The the second one, and this is a more recent one that just blew my mind and and I've gone back and listened to since, was a sermon preached at the beginning of this year at the Idea Summit in Las Vegas by uh, Pastor Kerry Schmidt. Uh, and you can actually find this one, uh, I believe it's called uh, something like Identity, Finding Your Identity, or something like that. It's on YouTube. If you type in Idea Summit, Carrie Schmidt on YouTube. You'll probably find it that way. Both of these sermons are actually on YouTube, but that Carrie Schmidt on finding your identity and, um, and Tim Keller, the prodigal sons. Yeah. That one on identity. You were there for that, Josh. Yeah. Phenomenal sermon. sermon. I would throw out there too. Maybe not my most memorable, but one I think everyone should listen to is, uh, the sermon Jared Wilson preached back in 2019 at the, for the church conference, Christ, our only hope. Excellent sermon. I would I would highly recommend it. We received another question from Mark Cabanion, I believe is how you pronounce his last name. Mark, correct us if we we're wrong. We apologize if we mess it up. <laughs> uh, he said, "Your views. What are your views on the different styles of preaching? Topical, contextual, expository. Their uses and misuses from the past up to the current." Yeah, that would be a, a whole episode to talk about their uses and misuses. And maybe that's there's a t- there'll be a place for well, that. Well, and even breaking down the different styles. Yeah, that could be a whole episode talking about the difference in the in the good uses and maybe the bad uses for each topical contextual expository. I I am slanted toward uh expository preaching. Yes. Uh only because I think it is and, and to be clear, scripture never tells you which one of these to use. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see examples of all of the above in Scripture. You see examples of topical preaching in Scripture. You see examples of expository preaching in Scripture. So I don't want to uh, insinuate that there's one of these that's right and the other ones are wrong. But in in the modern age, most of what we're doing in, – in the Bible, there was a lot of revelation occurring, right, where people were standing there saying, thus saith the Lord, I'm bringing you the word of God, right? Or, or you had – uh, preacher, you had Jesus walking the earth. Everything he said was literally the word of God as he spoke it. Mm-hmm. And so the Bible times were a little different than today. And I think today, this is just a preference, but I prefer expository preaching only because it is the highest regard in my view for biblical authority. It's very easy if all you're doing is topical preaching. And by the way, I've heard some great topical preaching. Um, it's very easy though for me and, and in the environments I've been in when you're preaching topically all the time, to miss things, mm-hmm. to, to kind of camp on several specific applications that you like to make. So no matter where you're at in scripture, you find those same applications uh, or you have something that's on your heart. So you, whatever's on your heart and in going on in your life, you tend to, I mean, you tend to do this even with expository preaching. Lean yeah, more into, reactionary preaching. Yeah, yeah, you lean into whatever is on your mind or on your heart. Uh, and that's that's okay, certainly, but, but you, we have to be careful about it. And I think 
expository preaching at some level, if you're doing it faithfully and striving to do it the right way, it pulls you out of that a little bit. Because expository preaching, if you're doing it the right way, you're trying to be faithful to what the text is saying. Mm -hmm. It is not my job to get up and apply the scripture uh, the way that I want it to. I have to be faithful to what the text is saying, to what the author was actually intending, to the historical context. And certainly I want to apply it to now. How does that principle apply to what we're facing today? But expository preaching stays extremely faithful. If you do it the right way, it stays extremely faithful to the text and it honors biblical authority, um, you know, possibly more than the others. And, I, and I'm not saying the others are wrong to do. I just think, I think a good balance of all of these maybe is helpful in a church. There's places for topical preaching. There's, but, but there's, I, I really personally have benefited the most from expository preaching. What do you think, Josh? Yeah, I would say expository would be my preferred style. I think, you know, you've got topical on the other end. It's fine in its, its proper place, but it gives you more of an opportunity to misuse scripture to support a point. And I, I think, obviously, I still think you can misuse scripture in expository preaching, but I think you have less of an opportunity of doing that when you're expounding the text as it is and making the application to today. So, yeah, but the uses, the uses and misuses throughout history, oh, my goodness, we could probably do a whole case study on that. Absolutely. That could take a while to cover all of that. The next question is from Kurt Mathis. He says, what is the history for discipleship in the Baptist church and some ideas for discipleship today? This is a broad question that we'd probably have to delve into on a fuller length podcast. Yeah. But um, there's a lot of different applications and methodologies. If you're, if you're talking about, if that's what you're talking about, if you're talking about methodology, which I think, I think that's what he's asking is what is the, what has been the different ways that churches have done discipleship? Um, and so if, if that's what you're asking, I think the, the ideas for today would be, would be distinct based on your environment, mm -hmm. your community, different communities interact in different ways. They, the cultures are different. And so you have to, there, there's a lot of ideas out there, but ideas for certain size churches don't work for other size churches. Exactly. Uh, ideas for older churches don't always work for younger churches and vice versa. Uh, churches in urban environments, they have to use different scheduling. They have to use different ideas than do oftentimes churches in, in more rural areas. So I would say find, uh, my, my suggestion on finding ideas would be to find somebody who has a similar context to you and who's doing it well. And we would like to in the future have guests on from these various environments mm -hmm. to talk about what they're doing and, and, and what God's, how God's using it. Um, but I think in order to, to be effective, you might have to experiment some. I know that at our church, we've experimented. We've tried different things. Oh, yeah. uh, if something's not working, change it. Do something a little fresh. We've changed schedule. We've changed times. We've changed when we're meeting, how we're meeting, what the meetings, how the meetings go. We don't compromise the basic elements of discipleship, which is what? Prayer, the word teaching and preaching the word, um, uh, you know, fasting, um, uh, one-on-one -on -one fellowship, larger fellow, larger group fellowship. You know, we need all of those things, that edification, that that's time spent together, that corporate worship, those elements can't be compromised because those are scriptural, but how you structure those things to facilitate the greatest, um, the greatest effect in discipleship, that's going to be something that's going to vary from context to context. The point is, I would say, don't, and this is just my two cents on this. Let's not elevate the method mm -hmm. over the mission. The mission, if we can do something more effective to get the mission done in a better way, we should be willing to, we should be willing to, they say methods are many, principles are few. Um, methods always change. Principles never do. So we don't compromise what our discipleship should consist of. I just, we're just not going to be, I don't think we should be married to how we've always done it. Let's do it in a way that reaches people, whatever that is, yeah. if that makes sense. If you'd like some good resources that might give you some ideas on discipleship, I would recommend Jeff Vanderselt's book, uh, Saturate and Gospel Fluency. Those are great books as far as discipleship goes. That might be a good place to jump off of. But I don't think the concept of discipleship in the local church uh, can be understated, and maybe it is something we need to discuss in a future episode. Uh, because... Yeah. Really, even growing up, it wasn't discussed much. No, we talk, I, not, we talk not a lot about. I can remember. We talk a lot about going to church. Yes, we don't talk enough about being the church, right? And and having life 
uh, interactions with believers on a weekly basis that doesn't just exist on Sunday. That's discipleship. And that's something that you're right. needs to be talked about more. Yep. Our next question comes from Katie Walker. Not really a question, more of an exclamation. She <laughs> said, I would love an episode with your wives. Oh, good luck with that, Katie. Yeah. I just mentioned it to my wife. Michaela was not. <laughs> I mentioned it to thrilled. my wife, Katie, and she was so, she was like, I don't have anything interesting to say, which she's wrong about, by the way. And if it's possible, Michaela seems to be the type even less interested than my wife. I would say they said almost exactly the same thing. <laughs> yeah, you'd be amazed at how similar uh, my wife and Josh's wife react to things. They're very similar personality type. So, wow, that would be fantastic, Katie. Pray for them. Yes, pray for them, <laughs> but don't get your hopes up. <laughs> I love this next uh question it's from john hathaway we had a previous question from him he says how can we as christians and the church do better at reaching members of the lgbt community with the gospel without compromising biblical truth wow what a heavy subject big, big that could big, be a whole yeah. episode and maybe we'll do an episode on that in the future i think that is john that is actually one of the more crucial questions of our time you know it used to be you just didn't have to talk about it it was understood everybody knew what the church believed and why they believed it uh, it's just not the case anymore. It, they, if they know what the church believes, sometimes they don't know. The average person may not know what your church actually believes about these uh, su subjects because churches are all over the map today. So if they know what your church believes, they don't know why. And if they do, even if they know why, they might mistrust the reasons. Um, so there's a lot of second guessing of what used to be understood. And, and I would say even that what used to be understood was not always understood properly. You know, we, we definitely have always had a moral framework in religion. But has it always been gospel-centered? No. Um, I think one of the things we can do, and I'll just, I'm just going to freestyle on this question. I don't have any notes here. But there's a couple of things we can do to do a better job. One is to be biblically and gospel-centered, biblically focused and gospel-centered. Here's what I mean by that. Teach what the Bible actually teaches and don't say things the Bible doesn't teach. We're very unhelpful when we say things that, is inf that are inflammatory but they're not biblical. It's very easy to do that. And there's, you, can, you, can, you can build a big audience of people who will agree with you when you say inflammatory things because it's how you feel about it. Uh, we, for one thing that we've in the past at times as, a, as the church acted like this sin was different than every other sin. Like it's somehow worse. A scripture does not teach that. Um, there, it just doesn't teach it. Um, we, we say things like um, about Sodom and Gomorrah that they were, that they were that two cities were burned for this sin. Well, Ezekiel has yeah, a whole list of things. Yeah. Ezekiel, I, I think between you and Ezekiel, or me and Ezekiel, I would take Ezekiel's uh, indictment of Sodom and Gomorrah over anybody else's. He said something quite different. Now, in that list of things Ezekiel mentions is, is sexual immorality. He talks about it right there in the passage. It's, but it's the fourth or fifth thing he lists. Surely, certainly that includes any homosexual behavior that was going on. But it's hardly the only sin, and it starts off with pride and, and fullness of bread and an abundance of idleness. There's a lot of things in that list. So we've done a, a poor job of talking about this sin in the church because culturally it was acceptable to treat it as different for a long time. And I'm not saying we should accept the sin today. I'm certainly not saying that. Scripture is very clear on, the, on this subject. Uh, the only sexual activity that is, that is God-ordained is within the confines of a committed lifelong relationship between a man and a woman. Period. And so the, I think the way to, I think the two things we can do is gospel centered, but biblically, biblically accurate. So let's do a good job of, of saying this is sin, just like all sec sexual activity outside of, of committed long-term relationship between a man and a woman, lifelong relationship, all of it's sin. But in, in our messaging, what can we do differently? I think practically something we could do is, is, flowing from biblical accuracy, flowing from gospel-centeredness, start to be honest about the fact that we're all sexually broken. There's not a single one of us that sin has not touched this area of our life. I don't care if you're a, a, a homosexual or heterosexual. You have, in your life, had to say no to certain sexual things. If you're an adult, you've had to say no to things if you wanted to be a disciple of Christ. We are not... Uh, there, there's not... Uh, people that are completely sanctified in the area of sexuality on this earth. Those people don't exist. We're all touched by sin. And so uh, to, to follow Christ, to be a disciple of Christ means 
to take up your cross every day and follow Jesus. And that affects every single one of us in the area of sexuality. We're all saying no to the things that are sin so that we can say yes to something that's much greater, much more beautiful, and that is a relationship with our, with our creator. And so what does is, what is, uh, somebody that's engaged in sexual sin need to do? They need to repent. They need to trust Christ. And then they need to engage in the process of discipleship and following Christ sacrificially because what God gives us in, him, in, in the person and work of Christ is so much more beautiful than the sin that we think will satisfy us here on earth. We, we are saying when we engage in sexual sin, God is not enough for me. I need this to make me satisfied. And it's a lie. But that applies to all sexual sin. And so theologically, we can get a better, we can, we can start talking about this in a way that's a bit more biblical, more gospel-centered. But practically, we can, we can start communicating the gospel and realizing the gospel applies to, those, to every single issue that sin touches, right? Where Romans says that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. The cross is not, God's arm is not shortened. And so I don't have ears to hear that, that, that there's people we won't minister to, or there's people that we won't, that, that we, that we're not interested in, in, in taking the gospel to. Um, God's arm is not shortened. The gospel works for every sin, uh, including the sin that our culture currently idolizes, which is uh, sexual liberation. All right. We received a question from Duncan Reinhardt. He, he asked, what aspect or theological topic do the two of you disagree on? And Duncan, we have been sitting here, I mean, since we came in to record, going over this question over and over. <laughs> there may be points of theological topics that we may articulate in different ways, but as far as disagreements, like right now, we pretty much agree on most everything. Um, and maybe at some point in the future, we may have a different interpretation of something or come to a different understanding, but at best there'll be secondary or tertiary things. Uh, as far as matters of orthodoxy, we're obviously in agreement. I don't really know of anything right off the top of my head that I could point to and say, well, this is it right here. Me yeah. and Clay disagree on have, this particular subject. We have differences subject. of sometimes perspective. We come from different places. We have different back, you know, slightly different backgrounds in some areas. But even those things are like, they're not... No, I, I recognize them as my perspective. You yeah. recognize them as your perspective, and we enjoy hearing from the other's perspective. It's not like I'm right, you're wrong kind of thing. Like I don't think, well, I'm right about this, you're wrong um, on this particular issue. I, I, we don't really view it that way. We have different perspectives, but I wouldn't say that we have any theological disagreements that I'm aware of right now, and maybe we'll come across something in the future. Um, of course, we're, we're eliminating heresies of caffeination, yeah, we're, we we're just won't talk that. about that. We just won't talk about that. But that is that is probably something we could we could we could mention here. I mean, that's one thing that we will probably always disagree on. <laughs> but that's not even secondary or tertiary. That's like what would you say six levels away from it? <laughs> that's Kevin. That's Kevin Baconary. <laughs> six degrees. Yeah. All right. Well, that kind of wraps up, Josh, our questions. Uh, what's some, we got some great questions in there, man. And thank you guys so much for submitting them. We did get a few more suggestions like on what you guys would like to hear from uh, us about uh, as, as future episode topics. Uh, one of them that I really liked was Kyle Gilstrap suggested um, we do an episode on bivocational ministry. Um, actually we got a couple of uh, questions on this. We got one from him. We've got one from Timothy Dyson also, uh, saying it, uh, you know, he was saying, Hey, I heard Clay, I heard you at the church now. Uh, could you talk It'd be, as somebody who's in, it sounds like you're in bivocational ministry too. And he was saying, Hey, let's, uh, it would be great to hear, uh, from somebody serving in church leadership while employed outside the church as well. That, that is a great, a great topic. Yeah. And, and I am bivocational, uh, currently. So that, uh, that's something that maybe we could do in the future. Um, and I, it, maybe we could have somebody on who does it well and has a lot of insight to give us on that. That'd be cool. Yeah. John Hathaway, uh, he suggested that we cover some episodes on apologetics in the future. This is actually something that Clay and I have discussed. And we're in the process of, if you will, whiteboarding something like that and working on some guests that could come in and talk about that. That would be, that would be great. And I think you guys will really enjoy it whenever that time comes. Yeah, absolutely. Colton Prater says... Uh, what are standards and how do you develop them according to the Bible? Josh, that's a great question. It is and a we, good question. We have multiple times, Colton, talked about doing an episode on standards. What are their role? I think they're, they have some somewhat of an outsized role in some churches, and in some churches they don't get talked about at all. Mm -hmm. Like it's just not a conversation. 
Um, that's a good question. I think that'd be a great topic for an episode. Uh, Chris Rule suggested we talk about music modesty. And he also asked for a shout out to our number one fan. Chris, you're the man. Thanks for sharing all our stuff on Facebook. You rock. And maybe one of these days we'll jump on the bandwagon with everyone else and talk about music and modesty. <laughs> modesty kind of dovetails there with the standards, but a good suggestion there as well. Yeah, modesty is a good question. What is what does the Bible mean by modesty and what is it what does it mean for us? The music thing, yeah. I that's a great question. I love music, so I would love to talk about that in the future. Josh and I have had conversations about yeah. maybe about doing an episode in that in the future. Uh, we'll see where that goes, but that's a great that's a great suggestion. Jeff Sears says an episode on methodology in reaching new and changing culture. That's a that that's an interesting question, and there are guys who have done a lot of work on this that maybe we could have a good guest on to talk about. Uh, to talk about some of those things. Uh, and it would be interesting to know from you guys, maybe we'll put this out there, um, what size churches you serve in, like get get a little bit of a survey of our listeners. Do you guys, maybe we could do like a Q&A, like series of questions on our on our Instagram story or something. Uh, and on Twitter too, do like a little poll and say, what size is your church? Are you urban or, or rural or, or in between? Like just have some questions like that and get kind of an idea of, of what our listener base is so that maybe we could find somebody that's, yeah. that's a, best tailored for them. And that goes along with what David Welch asked. He suggested an episode on church growth and, and different ideas on um, getting people to church. So that kind of goes very much along with the methodology and reaching a new and changing culture. So maybe we can get someone there. And then finally, Brian Self suggested an episode on spiritual gifts from a Baptist perspective. He said that would be dope. <laughs> He's correct. It would be dope. I would love to do an episode on spiritual gifts. That's a great, that's a great topic. Well, Josh, we could at least say this. We will be talking about some of those episode suggestions in the future. That is true. Absolutely. Very, very soon, hopefully. Um, Now, it has been our manner at the end of every episode to tell you what to expect next, but we're leaving you with a cliffhanger. You have to deal with it. Wait for, uh, uh, wait for an awesome graphic to show up on your Instagram or Twitter feed or Facebook feed, (laughs) and then you'll know what we're talking about. (laughs) Yes. And then in the meantime, pray for us as we decide what to talk about next. (laughs) Right now we're not 100% sure. (laughs) Well, Clay, what do you think, man? The future is bright. There it is. There it is. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Young Baptist Podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Young Baptist Pod. And check out our website at theyoungbaptistpodcast.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a review wherever you consume the content and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on the Young Baptist Podcast.